Hi, this is Thomas from Strategy and Sourdough. This week, Onur and I will talk about some of the experiences we've had working with different kinds of companies in how marketing is perceived inside of organizations. All right, cool. So welcome to episode number two. This week, I want to talk about something that's been on my mind, the meaning of marketing in different organizations. You and I have both had a lot of experience in different companies, whether in the form of consulting them or whether in the form of actually doing it. And I think there's a lot of variation in how companies perceive what marketing is. For some people, it's just, I have this product and everybody must know about it because I want to increase my sales. For others, it's a much more long-term vision and the brand building exercise. So at the top of your head, um, if you think of all the different companies that you work with in the past, what's the general perception of what marketing does in those companies? Can you can you think of a few examples? Yeah, that's a great question, actually. And, and there's two things that come to mind right away, uh, which are quite common, actually, especially when we talk to um, sort of what I would call, I guess, new economy clients. So these clients that are, um, or these companies that are formed a little later on, so less established marketing organizations, I guess. And the first thing is that marketing is often seen very much as just the communication end of it, right? So it, it's almost like marketing is what we put on Facebook or marketing is what we um, put into a radio ad or something like that. And I think that's the, the first thing that often comes comes up. And the second thing is that often marketing becomes you know, an inward out view of what our product, why our product is different or why our service is different and then creating a bunch of assets and communicating that out. What do you mean by inward out? Is it like, oh, this is what I think it should be and then trying to communicate that? Yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, we've created this product and we spent the last two years building it or 10 years building it or whatever it is. And we know this product is very special because of these five reasons. So let's get out there and buy some media space somewhere and create these or communicate these five things to people that we feel might be interested in it. That's kind of quite common, actually, uh, rather than looking at it from the outside and, and trying to define who the best customers for us might actually be and how we frame our difference a little differently. Um, and I, I think that's been quite fascinating to, to see, especially from new companies. Why do you think companies don't make an effort to go out and find out what the customers want to hear or uh, what kind of customers would be ideal for them? What's preventing them from being outward in rather than inward out? Well, I think one of the things that's driving this, uh, in my opinion, is the ease of self-service marketing channels these days. It's almost, <laughs> it's so easy to put marketing out there. Too easy. It's almost too easy now, right? Because, you know, often we, we relegate it to, We've been using Facebook for our marketing for five months. I don't want to call out Facebook here, by the way. It's just like, you know, Platform X, you know, it could be, could be any, but Facebook is one that people just kind of um, pretty pretty quickly uh, go and it's try out. It's easiest to get started with. It's easiest to get started with. And, and often, often here, there's like, we've been using Facebook for 10 months now and it does nothing for us. Uh, but then when we start asking questions about, well, you know, who did you talk to on Facebook? Um, what was the messaging? What creative did you use there? What was the concept behind it? What images did you use? And all that kind of stuff. And it, it, it almost like goes too quickly into execution and not enough time spent on really figuring out what we want to say, who to and why. 
Mm-hmm. That seems quite um, uh, sort of symptomatic at the moment of, of, of today's times. And I do think part of it is because these self-service channels have become so easy to use mm-hmm. that anyone can just put a bit of sort of media money behind it and start using them. Now, it's a good thing they're easy, but I think spending a bit more time thoughtfully thinking about what to do in those channels would be, would be great, um, a great place to, to start making marketing more meaningful again. It's, it's funny that you mentioned that because that's exactly my experience as well. Typically, how it works in the startup environment is a startup goes out, launches a product, maybe gets some word of mouth marketing. And at some point, they realize that they have a need to grow their business. And the first thought is, let's run a bunch of ads on Facebook, because like you said, it's super accessible, easy, most of the time affordable. And they go out and they run a bunch of ads without giving it much thought on what those ads are supposed to accomplish. And then they get a little bit disappointed with the results because it doesn't match up to their hyped up expectations about this huge success. And they get disheartened and then they conclude that like digital advertising doesn't work or Facebook ads don't work or, and then they go on to the next thing. And then they read a blog post about, oh, actually SEO is the most important thing that you should be doing. And then the growth hacker comes along and say, no, you actually have to do this one little trick that's going to help grow your business by adding a one-line banner into the end of your email signature or whatever the flavor of the month is, right? And I think this kind of short-termism and looking for a silver bullet is very counterproductive. But what's the alternative to doing that? So if I'm at that stage where I'm thinking that I need to grow my business and take it to the next level, and my gut reaction is to go and run ads on Facebook. I hear that from you that I should take a moment to stop and think about what I really want to accomplish. What should I do at that point? How should I approach this problem? Yeah, I, th- I think it goes back again to the sort of looking out first before we look in. So one very, very useful thing that I've found is most companies will have today will have relatively good data about who are their current customers, who's using a product or service, and, and how, how do they feel about it in general? So even if you haven't asked your customers that yet, um, you can look at things like how many, how many repeat purchases does somebody have? Have they perhaps left some reviews on uh, some of the digital platforms or, or things like that? And what's quite common actually between um, do, asking your current customers for stuff is that if you ask all of your customers, the results can get a little complicated and convoluted to look at. But especially earlier stage companies, the best, best thing that I've found is ask your, your top, absolute top customers why they love you and why they, why they use your product over others. Um, and that's a really good starting point, actually, because you, know, you can get into the habit of then identifying what similarities those best customers that absolutely love you have. I think in marketing speak, this is called loyalist research. <laughs> yeah, we, we can call it that if we want. So uh, start with loyalist research. and uh, That's something I learned out, last week. So now I'm like putting awesome. in some conversations. Now, now you're drop, dropping in the, in the new term. Yeah, dropping bits of wisdom. Absolutely. I love it. But uh, the, the point around that, that loyalist um, research and identifying those loyalists it really is to me that that gives you a good view of what your loyalists actually look like. You know, what characteristics do they have? How do they buy? Why do they buy? So you get more sort of qualitative and quantitative insights about the actual people that you might want to talk to more. Because ultimately, when you identify your loyalists, your task becomes find more of those loyalists wherever they might be. And 
And that's a really useful starting point, actually, because not only does that give you a better view of the service channels that you might be, self-service marketing channels you might be using, and you have a good starting point on, on what types of people you might be talking to. But the qualitative side of that also identifies some of the things that, uh, some of the reasons why they bought from you. And that, that can come a really good and useful starting point to the type of messaging you want to show, the types of concepts you might want to use, the types of creative that you might want to employ in the channels. And I, I just think that's a super simple, anyone can do um, way, of, way of getting started. Starting with research. And actually, research is interesting, too. It's go, it almost goes back to this notion of um, self-service channels being too simple. Find the research channel that works for you. And it can actually be as easy as identify from your own sales data who's the most loyal customer and just mm -hmm. call them. If you have their number and they've given you the consent to talk to them, call them or email them or send them a WhatsApp message and say, hey, I'd love two minutes of your time, you know, or, you know, you can provide them a, a voucher or something for, for, their, for their valuable time. But it actually doesn't have to be more complicated than that. I don't know why it becomes so difficult for people to pick up the phone and have a conversation. I think it's also because we've become so used to messaging each other and sending emails and not having any phone conversations. It almost feels strange when you talk to someone over the phone. And, and maybe that's why it's a bit uncomfortable. Maybe. But I mean, it's, you know, looking at some of these pretty simple self-service uh, research platforms then, like get on Google Forms or get on a SurveyMonkey and create a quick, you know... SurveyMonkey is so 2010. Now all the cool <laughs> kids are using Typeform. Okay, let's 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 pivot our let's pivot our support from from that to something something that isn't 2010. Yeah. Nonetheless, the point is there are tons and tons of solutions out there where you can create a quick survey that doesn't take more than five minutes to fill in and can actually provide all the in, inputs you need in just being able to be more effective with, with the stuff you do. And and the other thing that I think is just really important is sort of um, almost mediating between the, the messaging and everything you want to say and the channel. It's often not the channel's fault on whether it works or not. The channel is almost irrelevant. You just want to catch the best customers that you have in channels where they spend their time naturally anyway. And that channel could be an SMS, it could be a billboard on the side of a highway, or it could be Facebook. But nonetheless, any of those channels that you choose, it doesn't really matter what channel it is if the messaging doesn't resonate or if you're not talking about things in a way that actually gets people to notice. So those, those sort of principles of marketing are often overlooked too, too often these days, I think. The concept that you just talked about in marketing speak, I think it's called media neutrality, which in my mind, it deserves an episode on its own because yeah. I've been victim of this as well. If you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail to you. If you're a digital marketer, you think digital marketing is going to be the best place for you to advertise. Or if you work in an agency and you're incentivized to prioritize certain channels, but a real good marketer or a founder should focus on exactly what you said, where your customers are and figuring out what channels are the most effective to speak to those customers. Another interesting point. So you, you've done the research and you've identified where your top customers are. Once you've identified your top customers, I think a very important part is actively choosing to focus on these type of customers. And one thing that I've experienced in companies from very small to very large organizations, and this is a common problem, is almost this reluctance to choose a target. And this comes at the expense of effectiveness because 
if you say you are targeting everyone in the category, let's say you are trying to sell coffee and you say that your target audience is everyone who drinks coffee, or if you are selling an enterprise e-commerce software platform and you say your target audience is every enterprise company out there. I don't think it's particularly useful because then it doesn't tell you anything about what kind of channels you should be focusing on or what kind of uh, messages that you should be prioritizing. So to me, the, the, one of the biggest benefits of having your research and identifying the type of customers that are most valuable for your business is having that clarity and focus on who you want to um, targets. What do you think about this and what's your experience? Yeah, 100%. First of all, I, I, you're very impressive with your marketing terminology today. I'm, uh, that's I'm working on it. Drops, so I'm working on it's, it. <laughs> it's, very, it's very good. The second thing is, um, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think the sort of easy way to go, go, out of, go, go about targeting is basically say, well, who do you talk to? We talk to everybody. You know, so if you sell food, you talk to everybody with a mouth, basically. But that's not actually how, you know, good marketing works. First of all, you'll never be able to have enough marketing budget in any company in the world to talk to everybody. It's just not good economics. It doesn't maybe make except Coca-Cola. They have a lot of money. They have a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we'll we'll exclude Coke and maybe add another fifteen brands into that list. But when you look at more, perhaps a little bit earlier stage companies, maybe um, fifty to hundred years um, earlier stage companies than Coca-Cola. You know, one of the things that's really important is, um, do you want to dilute your messaging so much that it attracts theoretically everybody? Or is it actually better for you to convert a higher percentage of a smaller pool of people that are far more likely to use your, use your services? And we also have to keep in mind that um, in marketing, marketing shouldn't just be outbound. We, we've spoken about this a lot earlier as well. You know, once you start identifying those loyal customers, once you find a really good way of identifying the things, the characteristics that define those people, once you start understanding what their behaviors look like and how you can reach them through marketing, the, the second wave of that is these people will also give you the best inputs on how to actually make your product and your service and your customer experience and all the aspects of your business better. So if you identify those loyalists, you're far more likely to also get really valuable business insights from them than you are if you're just targeting absolutely everyone and then convoluting that sort of messaging um, across everybody out there. So the uh, advice here is in, in order to grow your business, you have to narrow your focus. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's, it's, it's like, you know, what, what's, what's better, getting a really, really small percentage of a large pool of people or getting a significantly higher percentage of a smaller pool of people. And the mathematics of it is obviously very simple to, to understand, but I think the confidence of a smaller pool that's more targeted and more likely to actually buy from you, the confidence of you actually converting those people to, to sales or to users of your product is, is far higher. And finding more of those types of people then will have a higher likelihood of success for you than continuing to kind of cast your net absolutely everywhere. I, I completely agree with you because when you have a narrower focus, most of the founders are worried that they won't be able to grow with such a limited audience. But in actual fact, um, they have a much higher chance of growing their business because most likely that audience is not as small as they really think in the first place. And second of all, like you said, if you are the big fish in a small pond, 
it becomes a lot easier to expand and go into other territories later on because now now you have the resources to pull that off whereas if you are trying to capture a much bigger market as a very small player i think it's a lot more difficult um one overlooked aspect of marketing that i want to talk about is pricing because most of the time pricing is in smaller companies it's seen as something that's probably a guesswork or something that the founder decides early on and doesn't really change. And in big companies, it's usually the finance uh, most of the time dictates what the pricing is going to be based on completely arbitrary growth goals that they set uh, once a year and they don't really look back. Whereas in my opinion, pricing is and should be an extension of marketing, just like how you choose your channel and how you Decide your messaging strategy. Your pricing should be an extension of your marketing strategy. What's your experience on this? Have, do you ever talk pricing with um, your clients in the agency or the startups that you advise with? Yeah, sometimes. I'm, I'm not sure I'm, I'm the best qualified to talk about pricing specifically. But however, what I've seen in the past is that, for example, lower price doesn't always mean higher sales. It's sometimes very counterintuitive. So the, the way that you kind of figure out how your pricing works actually helps position your product. So you position your product dif differently by going after a lower cost market or going after a, a potentially a more high value audience that way. And also, you know, into this, you know, into this equation comes all the freemium models and the way that you kind of, um, you know, position pricing accordingly and all that. But what I do want to kind of sidetrack side the conversation a little bit here is, the, the, the other aspect that uh, often often is, is forgotten to be a part of marketing is distribution. The way that you distribute the product and the experience I get, whether it's a physical product that arrives at, at my house or whether it's a digital product that gets delivered to me digitally, it's that sort of combination of marketing being you know part of the communications of how people find out about our products and decide to buy and, and perhaps actually evaluate based on the alternatives they may have. And then how do I get the product and how much I pay for it? Those, all those things I think are equally important. And it goes back to that loyalist identification that you mentioned earlier. When you have that identification of your loyal customers, it actually probably helps you figure out your pricing a little bit more, more too, because you can kind of talk about your most loyal customers that really, really want to buy from us. If we find more of those people, those people will probably be willing to buy the product at a, at a price that your most loyal customers are willing to buy today as well. Whereas you may find another pool of people that will absolutely not consider or, or think, think about your, your pricing as too cheap, for example. So maybe that loyalist angle is a good way to also talk about pricing and distribution and figure out how they want to achieve that. I think pricing is one of the most overlooked and possibly one of the most impactful components of a good marketing strategy. And it's unfortunate that uh, most marketers and startups don't really spend a lot of time thinking and refining their pricing. And I think they could definitely benefit a lot more from their marketing efforts if they set the price correctly. But um, yeah, in my experience where pricing hinders or contributes to your ability to grow your business, just two examples at the top of my head. The first one is a lot of marketers instinctively want to reduce prices in order to increase their sales. But what they don't realize is they're hurting their brand in the long term, because if I can get something for $70 instead of $100, over time it creates this perception that this product is worth $70. And there's no way I'm going to pay $100 for it because it will always feel overpriced. 
So essentially, I'm shooting myself in the foot when I reduce my prices just to get, gain that short-term benefit. The counter yeah. argument to this on increasing prices, like you mentioned, one of my favorite examples is from Dan Ariely's popular book called uh, Predictably Irrational. And in the early pages of the book, it talks about this jewelry shop in a remote touristy island that people go only in the summer by cruise ships. And the shop owner is frustrated uh, with the fact that some of the items in the shop are not uh, sold. It's almost the end of summer and the season is ending. So she tells the assistant in the store to cut the prices by half. But the assistant makes a mistake and accidentally doubles the prices. And over the weekend, all the items in the store are sold. And Dan Ariely explains this in the book by saying that for people who don't really know enough about what makes good jewelry or the ins and outs of gems, price is the single most um, easy way to gauge the value of something. And the mental association is if it's expensive, it must be good. And therefore, this is an example where actually higher pricing works better for your product and service. I don't think this is an example that could be applied to every single product out there, but I think it definitely is a good reminder to encourage people to think about their pricing. Yeah, I love that example. I haven't heard that example before, but it's, it, it is an awesome example of it. And I've been reading a book this week, actually, one that you recommended. You'll be, you'll be pleased to find out. A book is called uh, Obviously Awesome, and it's about positioning. So I finally received it. I do have this habit of wanting to order all my books in physical copies. So um, I've, I've waited for the book to arrive from Amazon for a while now. And now I got it and I'm reading and I'm kind of halfway through it. But one of the biggest things that I've learned from it now, and it's very relevant to what we're talking about today, is the importance of reframing your competition. Mm-hmm. And that's a super interesting, important point, actually, because it touches all of the things that we've been speaking about today. Reframing your competition doesn't mean that you, from an inside out, look at your competition. And even though I've kind of inherently always known this, I haven't actually actively thought about it that way because your competitors to a CRM software might actually be Excel, Excel sheets or they yeah. might be a pen and paper, right? So if you think about things from that perspective, how would you talk about your product differently if you really speak to your loyalists, your best customers and figure out what their alternative solutions to what they would be buying from you are How would you talk about your product differently? How would you price your product differently or service differently? That's quite a useful reframing of of how we want to establish ourselves out there in the world by looking at the real problems that your product or service will solve or the entertainment value or the feel-good value or whatever you're doing, right? And what are the alternatives for people really beyond the ones that you've identified as competing startups or competing established businesses? That was a really interesting thing to read, I think. That's a very good point. And a famous example that comes at the top of my head is where a lot of companies and products, uh, especially those who are trying to create like entertaining ads, for example, they think of their competitors as only the companies that are in their industry. But Netflix can be a huge competitor or podcasts are competitor because their customers have the option to spend their time on Netflix versus your entertaining content, so to speak. There's something else I want to talk about. You talk about distribution. It's, uh, again, referring to our famous professor, Byron Sharp here. He talks about uh, physical availability. And I think another overlooked aspect of it is 
um, can people buy your products? And it sounds so obvious that it's almost like most marketers don't really think about it. But I've seen so many examples of big companies going out and launching these huge advertising campaigns where they are trying to get people to sign up for a product or make a purchase online, but their website does not work. Or a physical example of this is, let's say you are selling caps. They go to your website, they, they see that it's sold out, or they go to their local shop and they cannot find the caps that you're trying to sell them. So this is where distribution is super uh, important, especially making sure that it's available. It's almost like it must be available at the places where your customers are located or would be. Yes, ab- absolutely. And I actually think this is related to two other concepts, your customer service, your distribution, and your sales support. One of my friends back home, he calls it aggressive buying. When like you're aggressively trying to buy from a company, like I've actually, I've, I've re- literally called you guys 10 times. Uh, I've emailed you 10 times. I've, I've tagged you on social media. I really want to give you my money. And still I'm finding it really hard to do so. And I would argue that almost every company has some of these customers, right? And that, that's what it comes to. I, I have a personal experience from a couple of weeks ago. So I, um, I got myself a new bike and I wanted to, I'm using a particular phone uh, cover that I can mount on the bike, which, is, which I have on my old bike. So I wanted to buy this mount specifically for my new bike so I can use that same cover on that bike. And I specifically wanted this one thing. And I really, really had to go, even though I'm an existing customer who have one of their products, I had to go massively out of my way um, in finding that product. And I actually ended up buying the product from a retailer that ended up giving me much better customer service than the brand directly ever did. And guess where I'm going to buy all of these products from in the future? I'm not going to buy mm-hmm. from them directly anymore. I only remember the experience that I had from the retailer specifically. And even though they're multi-brand now, that opens up my possibility by competing brands now massively. Whereas if I'd gotten better experience from the brand directly, then I would probably be far more loyal to buy from them again. So it comes back to that sort of distribution was part of the problem because I wasn't able to buy the product, but also the sales support and the customer service played a key role in that interconnected experience that I got or the lack of in this particular case. So we talked about quite a few different things. Let me try to summarize them. So we talked about distribution, we talked about pricing, we talked about customer support. But if we go back to the basics, it's the first foundation of what marketing should be is having a strong understanding of what kind of customers that you're trying to attract. And that it can only happen if you do your research properly. Absolutely. Find the loyalists, right? And then understand who they are, where they spend their time, how they want to buy, how much they want to buy. Everything comes from there. And it, I think fundamentally, if, if, if you do one, one thing differently as a company, that's going to significantly increase a lot of the outputs as, um, um, as a result of it. The second thing that we talked about was positioning. And I think positioning deserves a, a discussion on its own. But in the context of this conversation, it's what comes even before you talk about what creative messages that you are going to put out there. It's how you want to be known in your customers' minds. Yes, absolutely. And I think in that, from that perspective, there's no better place to start than, again, going back to your loyalist and figuring out what is the true, real competitive set of possible solutions that they may resort to. And just keeping an open mind 
that those alternatives are very likely to go way beyond the competitive startups and other companies that you as a founder or um, an executive might have actually considered. And these two components form the basis of what your marketing strategy is. It's essentially as simple as who am I talking to and how do I want to be known for that audience? That's it. Absolutely. That's it. That's all there. Once you can answer these questions correctly, then you can start to um, answer the tactical components of your marketing mix. These are which channels I'm going to use and what kind of messages I'm going to use to promote my products and services. What should my pricing strategy be? How will I want to ensure that I set the pricing correctly so I form the right associations, but also capture the most value for my company? The third one is distribution. How do I make my products available in the right channels for the customers that are really interested in buying from me and make it easy and seamless? And if I can, almost a pleasurable experience for them to buy from me. And lastly, you have to make sure that your product is good because if you don't have a good product, all of this does not matter in the first place. And having a good product does not just mean having a high quality product, it also means good product support and customer service and so on. Absolutely. Yeah, I, th I think these are really good starting points. So, you know, looking at earlier stage companies, you know, this would give a really nice starting point as to improving the effectiveness of marketing across the company's products and services, I think. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mr. Thomas. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Mr. Owner. A pleasure as always. And we'll see you next week. See you next week.